Hey, Chapel Street Church. I'm excited to talk to you about something called Rooted. Some of you already know about Rooted. It's been part of our church for a number of years now. Uh, several years ago, we were thinking and praying about, if you ask the average person who's part of Chapel Street what's next in their spiritual journey, we had a thousand different answers. And we felt like we needed one clear next step. And that's what Rooted has become. It's a 10-week journey through the gospel and scripture built around experiences. That's what makes it unique. It's not just study and filling in the blank answers. It's built around experiences through 10 weeks in community. There's a serve experience, there's a prayer experience, and these things combined in community help change people's lives. I've talked to many of you who have been deeply impacted by Rooted. Uh, some of you who are mature believers might be thinking, well, this is, I've already passed this. Not so. It's for you. If you're a brand new believer, it's for you. If you call Chapel Street your home and you're looking for the next step in your life with Christ in our community of faith, Rooted is exactly for you. We encourage you to take part in it. There's a new round of Rooted groups launching very soon. In, in fact, I've talked to so many people. One individual just recently has been through it three times that every time they learn something new. So I want to encourage you, if you call Chapel Street your home and you're feeling like God is moving you to take a next step in your faith in the new year, get involved in a Rudy group. Don't take my word for it. We want you to hear from those who've been part of it. This is our second time through Rooted. You probably learned more going through it with another group of people and uh, seeing new members of this new campus share their experiences, share their testimonies, growing in their faith. It's been my first Bible study, probably going to uh, change my opinion of future Bible studies just because it is so unique, so different. It's really reminded me that you know, you're loved for who you are. There's nothing you need to do in order to get that love. As I reflect back at significant moments in my Christian life, I had no idea Rooted would become so impactful. I've gained eight new deep relationships with people who were relatively strangers a few weeks before. Every week that I'm learning more and more, honestly blowing my mind as a philosophy nerd and just a science nerd, it's the coolest thing to realize that we get to have a personal relationship with the Lord of the universe. The last young man in that video, um, I got to hear part of his story at a rooted celebration back in the fall. And my wife and I happened to know his family. And we did not know that uh, he was part of rooted. He lives in our neighborhood, youngest of four brothers, and we have four sons. And we were shocked when we saw him stand up and tell his story, beautiful story. So rooted is a, a powerful, pro powerful 10 week uh, series of, of relationships and studies and conversations that has produced some great results. So. Hopefully, if you've not been involved, you can find a group to get in as we head toward the spring. Well, a number of years ago, back in my youth pastor days, I went to a seventh grade girls basketball game in a local middle school. I did it because we had a couple of uh, girls in our ministry who were playing in the game, and I thought it was a chance maybe to support them and maybe uh, connect with the parents who were watching the game. And at one point in the game, there was a jump ball. You know, two girls grabbed it at the same time. So they stopped the game and they did a jump ball. The referee tossed the ball up and in the scramble for the ball after it was tapped, the girl that grabbed it took off dribbling in the wrong direction toward the other team's basket. And she ran down, all the other girls were chasing her down there, her team, the other team, and she missed the shot. And a girl from the other team grabbed the rebound and she took off going the wrong way the other way. 
And everybody's yelling. The, the parents are yelling. Coaches are yelling, wrong way, wrong way, turn around, turn around. But it's a noisy gym, and the girls are playing with such enthusiasm and energy. They just kept playing. And they kept playing. And it went like three minutes of real game time. There wasn't a jump ball. There wasn't a foul. There wasn't an out of bounds. And the girls, both teams, going the wrong direction, playing like crazy, and nobody made a shot the whole time. And then finally there was a foul or something, and they stopped the game, and the refs were able to turn the girls around. The coaches explained to them, and all the girls start laughing. The parents start laughing. But I thought I'd just seen the most useless exhibition of energy <laughs> I'd ever seen. But it became kind of a parable for me. All the energy and playing like crazy and all this effort, uh, but going in the wrong direction the whole time, not really getting anything accomplished. It hit me, that's kind of possible in our everyday lives. It's possible to spend lots of energy and to run really fast and to play like crazy, but be confused about the direction and purpose of our lives and maybe even head in the wrong direction. Now we're in the second week of a series from the book of Psalms that we're calling Questioning God. And last week, Pastor Jeff said something in his message that I thought was really uh, good. He said the Psalms give us a language for our questions and doubts. I like that. The Psalms give us a language for our questions and doubts. And I would add to that, that that I think the Psalms also give us permission to be honest with God. As you read through the Psalms, you see they're essentially a, a collection of songs and prayers uh, from ancient Israel, and they're songs and prayers of confession, confession of worship and praise, confession of sin and guilt, sometimes confession of anger and bitterness, sometimes of fear and despair, and often filled with some very heavy and fundamentally human questions. Last week, Jeff covered uh, out of Psalm 10, where are you, God, in the face of all the injustice I see in the world around me. Where are you, God? Are you paying attention? And today we shift just a little bit to a question, what is the meaning of my life? What's the meaning of life when life seems so random and short? Does my life have meaning and significance even when I fail? So I'm going to read from Psalm 39 this morning. We'll put the words on the screen. You can open up your personal Bible or the Pew Bible. Psalm 39, beginning in verse 1. This is King David writing. He writes, I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me as I mused. The fire burned, and then I spoke with my tongue. Let me pause here before I continuing. King David here is struggling, obviously. This is a kind of messy psalm, we're going to find out. Uh, He says, I will guard my ways that I might not sin with my tongue. Evidently, something has happened in David's life, or he has done something that he can't even bring himself to talk about for fear what people will think of him if he says what's on his heart. And then he says, my distress grew worse, my heart grew hot within me, then I spoke. And if we look back to the previous psalm, Psalm 38, it gives us a hint as to what's going on in David's life. He says things in Psalm 38 like, because of your wrath, there is no health in my body. There is no soundness in my bones because of my sin. My guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. I confess my iniquity. I am troubled by my sin. So David evidently has done something 
in his life that's produced a deep sense of guilt and shame that he's struggling to bring himself to talk about. Now here in Psalm 39, he appears to be struggling to reconcile who he is with who God is. This is the great King David, the man after God's own heart, but who has sinned in some way. And he's in kind of an existential or an identity crisis, a spiritual crisis, or we might say he's in a dark place at the moment he writes this psalm. Uh, An image occurred to me this week in our preaching team meeting. I said, sometimes reading the psalms is like walking to the middle of an open-heart surgery in an operating room. And it's not pretty, but the surgery is necessary. That's what I think we're seeing here. Verse 4. O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Selah. That's a Hebrew word that means pause, or even just musical rest. Take a breath. Think about it. Verse 6. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me scorn the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Selah. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me, that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. So, before uh, I dig in a little bit more, we just can see here that David is clearly wrestling. He's wrestling mightily with himself and also with God. He's wrestling with how to make sense uh, of his life in light of the great contradictions he sees in his heart and he sees around him. And so he begins, I think, with what I'm calling the question of meaning. The question of meaning. Well, back in uh, November, um, Lorene and I went to visit our youngest son, Canaan, uh, who was playing professional basketball in uh, the island of Malta, of all places, which is in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. Now, Mal- Malta is a fascinating place, if you know anything about it. Uh, it's a tiny little island. It's 17 miles by 9 miles. You can drive across the whole thing in 25 minutes, which we did. Um, and it has a very long and interesting history. And it's, it's actually mentioned in the book of Acts, and you may remember in chapter 28, when Paul is shipwrecked there on his way to Rome. Uh, and, and so a lot of things on the island are named after St. Paul. One of the sites we visited there was called the Catacombs, of St. Paul. doesn't have much to do with Paul, uh, but it's an ancient underground burial vault that dates to pre-Roman Empire times. It's very fascinating. This is down about 20 feet underground, and there's all these uh, dozens and dozens of these chambers underground. It's very eerie. And the catacombs are an intricate series of tunnels and underground chambers filled with carved-out tombs that once held the remains of human beings. And you can see here kind of, um, there were two uh, types of, of burial places in, this underground, uh, vault, in these underground tombs. There, there were larger vaults that looked kind of like the size of a bathtub carved out of the stone. You can see some of them lined up there. 
But then there were dozens and dozens around the exterior of these rooms, much smaller little openings and spaces, almost like sink-sized spaces. And we learned when we read the information that uh, these were burial vaults and the smaller ones were for children. And there were three or four times as many small vaults as there were big vaults. It was shocking, really. And that's because in those days, infant mortality rates were so high. Due to infections, pandemics, poor medical understanding, it's estimated that 40% of all children in that time died before their first birthday. 40%. So although if a person made it to 20 years, they had a good chance of making it to 50, not much longer after that, but about 50 years, uh, the average life expectancy during the Roman Empire was only 25 years. In 1951, a philosopher named Thomas Hobbes wrote, The life of man is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. That was in 1651. Now, today, infant mortality rates are much lower, and life expectancy has improved greatly. In Japan today, uh, life expectancy is touching 91 years. Kind of amazing. And yet we are reminded daily that human life is temporary and short. I did two funerals just this past week. Verse 4. O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths. And my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Selah. Now, do you see that what David's doing here? He's asking God to remind him of the brevity and fragility of his own life. When's the last time in prayer you said, Lord, please remind me that I'm going to die? No, we don't, we don't pray like that in our culture. We pray like we want to live forever. Right? Heal me, make me stronger, keep me safe. But David asked God to remind him of the brevity of his life. And the certainty of our mortality, it seems to me, leads to one of two conclusions. The first conclusion is that human life is transient, death is random, therefore human life is meaningless in the great scope of the cosmos. Uh, this view is sometimes called the existential Nihilism, nihilistic view. Existential nihilism, it's hard to say. It was made popular by philosophers like Jean-Paul Sartre and Frederick Nietzsche in the 19th and 20th centuries. And this view assumes that the universe is not the creation of an intelligent, all-powerful, and personal creator. Rather, it's simply the result of the random forces of physics and that, therefore, there is no intrinsic purpose or meaning to human life. It's accidental. Human life is random, Death is random, and any meaning we may experience, we must create by ourselves to pretend that our lives matter. That's the existential nihilist view. And that, by the way, is what our young people are being taught the moment they set foot on a secular university in this country. That's what they're being taught. You are an accident of the random forces of the universe. Therefore, your only chance for meaning, you have to create yourself. You have to create what's true for you. You have to create your own identity. And I believe this is part of why we see the skyrocketing, skyrocketing anxiety and depression in our younger people today. Because that burden is too heavy. To create your own meaning, to create your own identity in the face of the entire universe is too heavy a burden. But that's the first view. The second view is radically different. The second view says human life is created by God and is therefore precious 
and has eternal significance. Genesis chapter 1, the first chapter of the Bible. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The Bible teaches that every human being bears the image of his or her creator and therefore carries intrinsic and eternal value. This, by the way, is why we grieve when a loved one dies. It's why we grieve. We're made in the image of God who knows us and loves us, which gives every human being eternal value. This is why even atheists and existential nihilists who claim human life has no intrinsic value and no eternal significance, they also grieve at the death of loved ones. Why? Because they're created in the image of God. This is why we are outraged at injustice. This is why even people who don't believe in God are outraged at injustice, which is very ironic if you think about it. Because they're made in the image of a God who is just. Psalm 139. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. The Bible teaches that every single human being is known by God from the womb. This is why we chose to support Caring Network over the Advent season. By the way, the giving toward Caring Network, last week I told you it was 380000 It's close to 430000 now. You just won't stop. No, that's why we chose that partner. Did you know that in Iceland, of all places, Iceland, since prenatal, prenatal screening tests were introduced in the early 2000s, births of Down syndrome babies have basically been eliminated. Do you know how? Because in Iceland, almost 100% of expectant mothers who find out their babies are Downs terminate those pregnancies. Think about that. We can't know exactly what David is thinking here, but my best guess is that he's saying something like this in our language. Lord, I am not all you made me to be. I have sinned in unspeakable ways. I need you to show me that although that is true, although my life, like all human life, is but a vapor before you, here today and gone tomorrow, that you still are the one who gives me life, the one who fills my life with meaning and purpose and value. In other words, remind me that I'm not an accident. Remind me of your purpose, even if sometimes I fail that purpose. Let me just say, if you're a parent today, or you're a grandparent, or you're a great-grandparent, take every opportunity you have to remind young people that they are not an accident. That there is a God who knows them, who loves them, and has purpose in mind for their life. They desperately need to know that. Next, David turns his thoughts toward the need for meaning. That's the question of meaning, now the need for meaning. I'm sure most of you recognize the name Charles Schultz. He's the creator of the Peanuts comic strip, Charlie Brown, Linus, Lucy, Snoopy, and the whole gang. Um, he published the first Peanuts cartoon in 1950, and his cartoons ran continuously for almost 50 years, just a few weeks shy of 50 years. And in all that time, Charles Schultz took one week off from writing his cartoon strip. An amazingly creative person. 
At one time, Penis was published in 2,600 daily papers in 75 countries in 21 different languages. Now, you may know Schultz was deeply interested in spiritual things and in the Bible. Uh, it's hard to tell what version of Christian he was, but he was deeply interested, and these themes made their way into his cartoons. Charlie Brown, for example, questioned the meaning of life. You may not be able to read the text here, but let me read it for you. In the first one, he says, Sometimes I lay awake at night and ask, Why am I here? What's the purpose of it all? Does my life have any meaning? In the second frame, he says, Then a voice comes to me that says, Forget it. I hate questions like that. Even Snoopy has questions. Where am I going? What am I doing? What's the meaning of life? I don't have it, but the next frame, uh, Charlie Brown gives him his food bowl, and he says, Ah, meaning! Now, it's human to ask questions. When we greet each other on the street or in town, what kinds of things do we say? How are you doing? It's a question. You know, what's up? It's a question. There's an aboriginal tribe uh, that greets each other with, where are you going? What direction are you headed? As human beings, we can't help ask questions. Where do we come from? Where are we going? Why are we here? Why can't the bears beat the packers? You know, good, good hard questions. Verse 6. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. Human beings ask questions because we crave meaning. In this one verse, I think there are two questions. Why are we in turmoil for nothing? Why are we in such anxiety for nothing? Why do we heap up wealth that we can't use? that will be passed on to someone else. My wife and I, had our family had a Labrador retriever for 10 years. And right now we're keeping our son and daughter-in-law's eight-month-old Bernice Mountain Dog. Uh, and the best I can tell, dogs don't wonder about the meaning of their lives. They eat, sleep, do their business, but they don't walk around asking, why am I here? What's going to happen to me? What's my purpose? But human beings do wonder. We need, we crave meaning. And we're in turmoil, I believe, because many of the things we pursue to give us meaning don't deliver. When we are creating our own meaning, we end up like those seventh grade girls playing like crazy, aiming at the wrong goals. The ancient words of the writer of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes, uh, says it this way. He says, I said to myself, listen to how contemporary these words are. Come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine, embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what is good for people to do under the heavens during these few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. 
Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. The ancient writer laments that when we look for meaning, for example, in our work, all we accomplish ends up being passed on to someone else. Some of you may remember from back in your school days uh, a poem written by Percy Shelley in 1818 called Ozymandias. Remember that? Maybe you were supposed to read it, maybe you read it in Cliff Notes. It goes like this. I met a traveler from an, an, uh, an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip, the sneer of cold command. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. In other words, when we look for status and accomplishment, all of it ends up being covered over with the sands of time. When we look for pleasure, we find ourselves empty. When we look for meaning and knowledge, there's never enough. Later in Ecclesiastes, the writer says, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And that leads us to the third thing I see in this psalm, which is the source of meaning. The source of our meaning. I don't know about you, but in recent years I've become kind of more and more fascinated by New Year's celebrations. I've talked about this over the years. How many of you watched the ball drop in New York City? A few of you? you? You stay up late enough to watch that? I used to watch it. Now I get too tired. I go to bed at 10 o'clock and I figure it's midnight somewhere. Um, but tens of thousands of people crammed into Times Square waiting breathlessly for the countdown. This is what it looks like this year. You know what it looks like. Cheering wildly when the clock strikes midnight and the new year arrives. And this happens in various ways, all over the world. It does. And I wonder, why exactly? <laughs> I wonder, what is it about the past year and all previous years that makes us think the new year will be any different or any better? And yet, people celebrate wildly. One writer for Psychology Today suggests it's about survival, that subconsciously we're celebrating the fact that we've survived another year. And that may be partially true. Some think it's because we celebrate because we're hoping for a chance to be a little bit better version of ourselves, and that may be true too, but I think it's about hope. I think it's about hope. I took this photo in front of the old courthouse right in Geneva. Some of you may have seen it. This big block letters that spell out hope. I think human beings are hardwired by God to hope. Viktor Frankl wrote uh, one of the most influential books of the 20th century called Man's Search for Meaning. That's all about the power of hope he discovered in the Nazi concentration camps. Every human being hopes, but hope, by definition, needs an object. What do we invest our hope in? Because human beings can hope in almost anything. But there are different kinds of hope. There's hope that is uncertain, and there's hope that's certain. So how can we move from hope that is uncertain, like I hope the Bears beat the Packers someday, or I hope the pandemic ends soon. That's hope, but it's uncertain hope. To a hope 
that is certain, like, I hope I go to heaven someday, or I hope in God. Verse 7, David writes, And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Why? After all this wrestling that David's doing in his soul, what does hope in God provide? Let me suggest two things from this psalm. First, the hope of forgiveness. David writes in verse 8, Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth. For it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. David is under conviction for his sin. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like moth. What is dear to him, surely all mankind is a mere breath. I believe the Bible teaches us that every human being, no matter what they say they believe, carries a deep sense, deep in who they are, of right and wrong. I think that's true. And therefore, every human being carries deep within them a sense of, a sense of guilt. From which we seek some sort of deliverance. And we discover eventually that we cannot forgive ourselves. We don't have the power to forgive ourselves, to relieve our own guilt. Shakespeare wrote a lot about that. Only the God who made us gives us that hope, the hope of forgiveness, and secondly, the hope of restoration. Verse 12, he says, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace from my tears, for I am a sojourner with you. A guest like all my fathers, look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. So David is troubled in soul. He has questions and he cries out to God in hope. First of forgiveness and then in hope of restoration. What I'm calling restoration. He says, I am a sojourner with you. That's an interesting phrase. It simply means I know that the world, this world around me is not my home. It's not where I I ultimately belong, for my true home is with you. That's why I put my hope in you. You gave me life. You give my life purpose and meaning. You forgive my failures and sin. You promise your presence and your peace. So my hope is in you, O God. Which is why David writes in Psalm 16, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I don't know if you saw uh, this on the news this past week. I was just watching um, the 530 news, the national news, which I watch several times a week. And at the end of the broadcast, uh, the uh, newscaster, David Muir, always has a little, you know, a little tiny story, kind of a feel-good story after all the bad news. You know, he usually puts that at the end. And one night this week, it was the story of the oldest World War II soldier having died. And his name was Lawrence Brooks, and he died at the age of 112. And David Muir said, so this is national news broadcast, okay? He said, when asked about the secret of his longevity, Mr. Brooks said, serve God and be nice to people. Serve God and be nice to people. And that's how the broadcast ended. Now, some would say, you know, that's sweet and it's quaint, but, you know, not so much to show for a 112-year life. I would say Mr. Brooks lived a profoundly 
meaningful life. Because he knew which way he was going, and he knew where he was going. Jesus said in Matthew, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Mr. Brooks just said, serve God and be nice to people. So what's the meaning of my life? Your life. We either have to create it by ourselves, make as much money as we can, learn as much as we can, work as hard as we can, have as much fun as we can, or we trust the direction and word of the God who made us, who knows us, who loves us, who forgives us, and when this life is over, which it will be in a flash, promises us his presence, new life, and eternal life. What's the meaning of my life? You bow with me in prayer. Lord, we thank you today for your word. We thank you for the honesty and wisdom of the Psalms. We thank you for allowing and even inviting our questions. So now as we come to your table once again, I ask you to remind us through bread and cup of your provision. Your provision of forgiveness and the promise you give us of hope a certain hope. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.